Good morning, Every Nation Rosebank. Welcome to the Kurpas 10 uh, service. Uh, if you are uh, new in our midst, uh, my name is Lirego and I'm one of the pastors here. It's a great pleasure for me to stand before you. We are embarking on a new series that is our The King and His Kingdom series, and we're going to be uh, looking at the book of Matthew. Uh, it's, a, it's quite an exciting series, and, and so we're going to be looking at various themes uh, within the book of Matthew, and uh, specifically how Jesus is drawn out, portrayed um, within, within this book. Now, if you read uh, the, the, the book of Matthew, and in fact, any of the Gospels, if you, if you read any of the Gospels, and your intention is to read about uh, the comprehensive biography of Jesus Christ, you're going to be disappointed because that's not what the Gospels are about. The Gospels are an attempt to portray something very specific about Jesus, the nature of Jesus. And so if you are reading the Gospels, any of the Gospels, with the intention of encountering Jesus and being transformed, you will encounter Jesus and be transformed. Amen. When you look at, uh, you know, so, so a question that, that I sometimes get asked is, why do we need four different stories about Jesus and, and about what Jesus did? And so when you look at all of these uh, uh, Gospels and you, you, you look at the, the, the places of overlap and you look at what this one mentions and what this one doesn't, you really get a fuller picture um, of, uh, of, of the nature of Jesus, how he was revealing himself to us. And I think one of the more important things is that uh, each author is highlighting uh, something, something specific. So if you look at the book of Mark, for example, you will notice that, um, that it, the theme throughout the book is one of Jesus and the, the cost that he was willing to pay for our sins. The suffering Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, but the suffering of the anointed one and, and the suffering of the disciples, the, the cost of discipleship comes up as a, as, as a theme in that. You contrast that with the book of, uh, with, the, with the gospel of John, and that's more, uh, the emphasis there is more of a divine Jesus, you know, the, 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 the word who, uh, who, who became flesh. And, uh, and, and it gives the impression of a Jesus who's more divine, more in control of his circumstances. Uh, you, you look at the book of Luke, and, and, and there's a, a, a prevailing theme around the compassions of Jesus. So Jesus, who's able to cross boundaries and, and able to, 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 to speak to different people, he's loved by those who are rich and poor, the, the Jews, the Gentiles, all of these people, the, the, the sinners are, are all attracted to this man, Jesus. When we look at the book of Matthew, which is what we're, we're embarking on from today, we see that, uh, that Matthew wanted to position Jesus as the Messiah, the king, uh, who was expected and anticipated, prophesied in the Old Testament in order to position him as the king of kings. So, if we look at uh, Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 9 to 10, it says that Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. 
while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And this is who Matthew was. Matthew was a Galilean Galilean Jew, but he was also a tax collector. So he was a government official. And he was an official of the Roman government, which was the government that was ruling over Israel at that time. And so Israel did not have independence. And so there was this tension, this this social tension, this political tension that Jesus walks into. And you had this... um, Amassed on top of that was that you had some, some Jews who were employed by the, the Roman government to collect taxes on their own people. And so this was severely frowned upon and caused these guys to be kind of have their own kind of circles of social pariahs on the side. And, and here's Jesus, he walks into the scene, goes to the tax collector who's collecting taxes on behalf of Rome on his own people calls him to follow him. And so Jesus, right from the start, was breaking paradigms. It is said that um, uh, among uh, scholarly circles that when Jesus called Matthew, Matthew left everything except his pen. Um, and he was, one, he was one of the guys that were more likely to be a, a, a scribe of, or, or, or recorder of the things that Jesus would say and do. So Jesus' works and his sayings. Amongst the disciples, he was one of the more qualified for this. And so this is who Matthew was. Now Matthew had the task of, of, of writing a gospel or documenting the works and the sayings of Jesus on behalf of a, a Jewish audience. And so what he wanted to do is to frame this gospel in such a way that the Jewish audience that he was speaking to would believe that the Jesus that Matthew was talking about was the Messiah that they had heard of in the Old Testament. And so my job this morning is for us to to come to an agreement that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of Kings, and that therefore there are implications towards us if that is the truth. So there's three things that I want to look at if, uh, as we go down that path. And, and the first thing is the genealogy of Jesus. I want us to explore that a little bit. Then I want us to look at the identity of Jesus and the authority uh, that he walked in. So those are the three things that I'm hopeful we'll be able to achieve in the time that we have together. Now, right at the beginning of the book of Matthew, chapter 1, starts to list the genealogy of, um, of Jesus. And so, uh, it says, Abraham, that's from verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, if you read on, the the genealogy continues. It's 14 generations from Abraham to David and from David until the the, the captivity when they're carried into Babylon. That's 14 generations, 14 generations from there until the birth of the Messiah. 
And so here is Matthew who, who knows that the people that he is speaking with have an idea, have a matrix in which the Messiah must fit into. And if his Messiah doesn't fit into this matrix, then he's going to lose this audience. So his job is to highlight the things about Jesus, his genealogy, the line that he came from. So he knew that according to Jewish uh, understanding, the Messiah had to come from the line of David. And so he highlights that, that this Jesus that I'm telling you about comes from the line of David. He knew that uh, the, the audience that he was talking to uh, understood that the Messiah had to be born of a virgin birth. And so he highlights that. Not, the other Gospels don't get into that. But Matthew spends time introducing the, 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 the circumstances around the birth of Jesus so as to speak to an understanding that he knew uh, or into a context that he knew would be helpful. So he labors the point that Jesus was born of a virgin birth. He knew that they, they, the, the, the Jewish audience that he was speaking to uh, expected that the Messiah would be born and come out of Bethlehem. So he tells the story of Jesus' Jesus's birth and, and, and highlights the point that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So what he's doing is bringing his audience along and helping them tick the right boxes so that they would understand, believe, and be persuaded that the Jesus that Matthew was talking about was the Messiah that they were expecting. So that's why he starts the book by listing the genealogy. Now, I don't know about you, but in other places in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there are, there are long kind of genealogies that I sometimes encounter when I'm reading the Bible. You know, so this guy begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. And I struggle to find the relevance of, um, of, of this. I'm just confessing right now. Maybe I'm alone, and that's okay, um, because I've repented. What I would sometimes do is when I come across these long chapters of this guy begot this one and this one, just skip over. <laughs> just get to the story bit. When did they start slaying each other and like, you know? As I was looking at this genealogy, something popped out at me that um, I hadn't recognized in a lot of the other genealogies that I'd seen, particularly in the Old Testament. The first thing that I noticed in this genealogy was that it listed women, which was not a done thing. In fact, to list women in your genealogy was to discredit your genealogy. And yet, in the line of Jesus, women were listed. In fact, not only that, but we would need to appreciate the fact that um, if you look at verse 5, it lists a lady by the name of Rahab, who was a lady of the night. And so prostitutes are listed, not only in the Bible, but in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Not only Rahab, but Ruth is listed within this genealogy. Ruth, who is not even an Israelite, who is co-opted or, or, or pulled in to the line of Jesus. So people that were not even 
within the line of promise, within the chosen people, are listed in the line and in the lineage of Jesus. A, a gentleman by the name of Judah, maybe you've heard, of, you've heard his name being mentioned, is listed in the line of Jesus. Let me tell you something about Judah. His, question, his, his, his morals were a little bit questionable. Here's what I mean. He was guilty of sleeping with his daughter-in-law thinking that she was a prostitute. I don't know which one of those is worse. I don't know what to do with that one. The, the daughter-in-law, Tamar, was guilty of sleeping with her father-in-law, pretending to be a prostitute. This is a messed up family. You don't know what to start fixing. You don't know what to start addressing. But here's the, here's the point. It is messed up families. It is broken people. But God uses them anyway. God is in the business of redeeming broken people. See, you still think that God has disqualified you because of your sin. You think that there are things that you have done that have taken you out of the place of grace and God can no longer use you. You have disqualified yourself. God didn't disqualify any of these people. Abraham, let's not get started about Abraham. Let me tell you about David. David killed his good friend because he slept with his wife. He slept with his, wife's, with his friend's wife. She felt pregnant. Who could have seen that coming? You know, I'm, uh, she felt pregnant. Okay, damage control. Let's kill him. He has him killed. He repents spectacularly. God is glorified, all of that. But these are the caliber of people that God is in the business of using. You are not disqualified. Stop disqualifying yourself. Stop seeing yourself as small and minimal in the eyes of God. God took Jacob and he took Judah and he took Perez and he took, he took, he took, he took Boaz, he took Obed, he took, he took David, broken people, and he used them to bring, to usher in the Christ. God can use you. God made room for Rahab. In his kingdom, God can make room for you. In fact, here's what I want you to do. If there's somebody to your left or to your right, I want you to look at them and I want you to tell them, God made room for Rahab. He can make room for you. Now, I want you to go ahead and tell them, I'm, I'm not saying you're a prostitute or anything. Um, but it's in the Bible and the guy said it, we must say it. So just let's just work with it. I don't know. <laughs> Saints, if God can make room for Rahab, if God can make room for the prostitute Rahab, if God can make room for the non-Israelite, non-Hebrew prostitute Rahab in his kingdom, trust you me, he can make room for you. You are not far from his reach. The next thing that David wanted to highlight was the identity. So Matthew wanted to highlight the identity of Jesus. And so it was important that he establish in his audience's minds that Jesus was the son of Abraham. This was important because the Jewish mind understood that the covenant was made with Abraham. 
that Abraham, I will bless all the nations through your seed. In Galatians 3, Paul breaks that down for us to understand that when God was making the covenant with Abraham and uses the singular form of the word seed, he is talking and referring to Jesus. Not all your sons, not every son that you will bear, but Jesus. And so Jesus then becomes the fulfillment of the covenant blessing that was bestowed upon Abraham. His audience knew this. And so it was important that he establish the fact that Jesus was the seed of Abraham. And so therefore was the conduit of blessing. It was important that he establish to his audience that Jesus was the son of David. Because through David came rulership. And so what he was establishing by establishing that he came from the lineage of David was that he had the right to rule. Because the, it was, was through the throne of David that rulership would be extended and established. And these are the things that Matthew was establishing in the Jewish audience's mind as he is taking them through the story of who Jesus is. And of course, if we, if we are in agreement so far, so if we agree with the, with the genealogy, and that ticks all the boxes, and we agree with the identity, he's the son of Abraham, he's the son of David, then we must, by process of logic, arrive at the conclusion that he is the son of God. And if he's the son of God, then he is able to save. And he has authority that he uses and dispenses. And this was the, this was the case that Matthew was building. If Jesus is the Son of God, and we agree that Jesus is the Son of God, and we've, we, we, we've, we've, built, we've built the case, then let me tell you about his life. And that's what he begins to do. So he established all of this right at the beginning. And then he begins to tell the people about the works and the saying of, sayings of Jesus. With special emphasis on the ones that highlighted the majesty, the kingship, the messiahship of Jesus. Which is why you'll find some stories repeated in other gospels and not re repeated in others. So Jesus had the authority to call and order men. The only people in that time who had authority to call and order men around, follow me, do this, were, people, were the religious elite, the economic elite, the political elite. Those are the people who could do that. Here comes Jesus. He says, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Jesus had authority to teach. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The only people who had authority to teach up until this point were the religious elite. Jesus had authority to heal. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to the, and, and, and said those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, 
it will be done just as you, as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Jesus had authority to heal. The only people that had authority to heal at this point or those that they'd heard of were kind of the national prophets. So God would raise up a national prophet that he would, or that, 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 um, that he would empower, anoint, and use. And so the stories that they'd heard of miraculous healings and things happening were through the prophets. Jesus had authority to cast out demons. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. He had authority over nature. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus had authority over nature. Again, the only kind of people, the stories that, the pe- that they had heard of, people who had authority over nature, uh, demons to heal, etc., were the specific people that God would raise up, typically the prophets of the, of the day would be able to perform these kind of miracles. And yet here we see Jesus walking in full authority. Not only did Jesus have authority over these things, he had authority to delegate authority. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then in Matthew 28, he says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He had authority that he delegated to his disciples. He had authority that he he delegated to the 12 and the 70 and to all who would believe. That's every single one of you who are followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, if we look at just that last line of Matthew 28, it ties up a concept that was started right at the beginning. So Jesus is to be born, and there's this great announcement, and he's to be called Jesus, but we know that the the angel pronounced he's to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And and so that that principle is, is established right at the beginning, and he himself ties it up at the end. God with you, surely I am with you always to the end of the age, Emmanuel. And so, Jesus had this authority, lived it out, modeled it to those who were with him, and then he handed it over. Why then do we sometimes shrink back from operating in this authority? Is it because we don't believe that Jesus had the authority? Most of us would say that we believe Jesus had the authority. Is it because we, we don't believe that he had authority to delegate it? If we thought it through, most of us would agree that we believe that if he had the authority, then he had the authority to delegate it. And so if he had the authority and he the authority to delegate it, why do we sometimes see a lag in our own lives? 
I want to ask this question, and I've been asking myself this question all week, and it looks like this. What, what would society look like if Jesus had never delegated his authority to us? And to understand that, we kind of have to go back to before the time of Jesus, before Jesus came along. So we've been talking about it, all the authorities. Who had the authority in those moments? The people who had the authority before Jesus gave it to everyone was the political elite, the economic elite, and the religious elite. Those were the people who had the authority. Then Jesus came and just kind of shared it with everyone. Now, why am I laboring this point? In my observation, as a, as a nation, we are in danger of tending towards what it looked like before Jesus came along. We're, we're, we're in danger of taking what authority Jesus gave to us and handing it back to who had it before him. That's why today we have superstar pastors who can't be questioned. Because we have delegated the authority to hear from God, to teach, to break down the word, to, to interpret all of these things. And they do weird things. Because we delegate that authority to them. Our authority, the authority that Jesus gave you. Let me step on a toe or two now. If you are in the practice, you know when you, say you have a friend, and the friend is sick, has an injury, and, and you know that Jesus can heal, and so you want to pray, uh, or you believe that they should, you, you should, they should receive prayer, what do you do? If you're, in the, if you're in the practice of picking up your phone and calling up Pastor Greg to come and pray for this person, there's a thin line there. Because what in essence you're believing is that Pastor Greg walks in a particular authority that God has given him that I don't have. You're delegating the authority that has been given to you, the, de the authority that was won for you on the cross, you're taking that authority and you're giving it to one man. This practice that we have of bringing, bring along my friend to church and hope the pastor shares a good word. And then they're going to be saved. Stop delegating the authority. Live it out. Jesus saw something wrong with the system where only a few people had the authority. And he did away with that by taking that authority and giving it to everyone. So don't take the, that authority and undo the work of Jesus. You live out that authority in every single day of your life. When you walk into your workplace, you have authority to lead. It's been given to you. Jesus modeled it. He walked up to people and he challenged them and he called them and they changed as a result. When somebody in your family or in your workplace is suffering in pain and in sickness, or you have the authority to lay hands on them and see them healed. It's your authority that Jesus gave you. 
when you're trusting for people that you love to be saved because you want them to know this amazing Jesus, you have the authority to speak words of salvation over them. You don't need to wait for Sunday or hope that they'll respond to an invitation to come to church. The authority is yours. Remember this. God uses broken people, redeems broken people, has done amazingly, by the way, with broken people. So don't disqualify yourself and don't delegate what God has already given you. Let's stand to our feet. Now, the authority, everything that we have been speaking about. So we've built a case for why Jesus was actually the Messiah. The fact that he's the King of Kings. By the way, that's all it took to convince the people who were in Matthew's day. Okay, his genealogy checks out. His identity checks out. The things that you're telling us about his life check out. That's what it took to convince them. What is it going to take to convince you, one, that Jesus is the Messiah, two, that you have the authority? How many sermons do you want to hear? How many books do you want to read? How many awesome videos do you want to watch before you get it? If you don't, if you're not following Jesus right now, you're not following Jesus. What that means is you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You're not in relationship with him. Um, your, 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 your words, your deeds are not in alignment with his teachings. If I were to look at your life, your life doesn't tell me that you are, that you are a follower of Jesus. Then what is it going to take to convince you to follow him? Matthew built a case for who Jesus was, presented it to a people, and they received it. Will you receive it? Will you receive this case that Jesus is making for himself this afternoon? This authority that we're talking about is available, but it's only available to you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't want to assume that everybody in here is a follower of Jesus Christ. Most of us have taken that step, I think, but maybe there's some of you who have not yet. And I want to pray for you if that is you. So if you want to follow Christ, would you raise your hand so I can pray with you? You want to follow Christ? Thank you, bro. Raise your hand. Keep it raised. Raise your hand if you want to follow Christ. And don't let the fear of man get in the way with what God is doing right now. Thank you, that hand, I see it at the back. Keep it raised. There's two brothers right now who have bravely lifted up their hands and are, and are boldly declaring, I want to follow Jesus Christ. Is there anybody else who wants to lift their hand and boldly declare, I want to follow Jesus Christ? Don't miss this moment. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask you two brave gentlemen to grab your belongings and to come, 
to come up here. We, we want to celebrate you, but I also want to pray with you. So would you do that? Would you guys come on up to the front here? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Don't feel like you have to miss this moment. If you didn't raise your hand, you can still come up. If you're still doubtful, come to the front. pray with you guys. Please repeat this prayer after me. We're going to ask everybody, in fact, to pray this prayer because we want to stand with you in this special moment. Dear Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is who He says He is. He did what the Bible said He did. And today, I receive him in my heart as my Lord and my Savior. May my life never be the same again. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.